WORT Summer Festival is coming. Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. We'll have a wide variety of live music. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more information at wortfm.org. See you there. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsinites looking for work would see fewer unemployment benefits under a package of Republican-backed bills up for consideration at the state assembly today. The legislation would also impose stricter requirements for people to qualify for benefits, the Associated Press reports. Unemployment recipients in the state already have to actively look for work to get benefits, but the new measures would tighten how those job search activities are tracked and make it easier for benefits to be cut off. They would also reduce benefits from 26 weeks to 14 under the state's current unemployment rate. All seven bills passed the assembly today along party lines. Governor Tony Evers vetoed similar legislation during his first term and is expected to do the same if the new bills reach his desk. Meanwhile, at the Capitol, Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss announced plans to unveil a bipartisan proposal to increase state aid for local governments, an issue that has long been a sticking point in the legislature. The plan is expected Thursday. Democratic U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin wants answers about how the military carries out prescribed burns in Wisconsin after a wildfire broke out near Fort McCoy earlier this month. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that Baldwin sent a letter to the U.S. Army Secretary yesterday seeking information about how officials assess fire risks and coordinate with state agencies before starting prescribed burns. Fort McCoy announced plans for a prescribed burn on April 12th, the same day the governor declared a state of emergency due to state weather warnings about high wind and elevated fire danger. An uncontrolled wildfire broke out adjacent to the western Wisconsin Army base that evening, eventually burning to more than 3,000 acres but military officials have declined to comment about the cause of the blaze or if the planned burn took place. More Wisconsin college students are leaving college without a diploma. Nearly 750,000 in the state had left school with credits, but no degree or certificate for the 2021-22 academic year, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. The data comes from the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. That's an increase of about 22,000 people from the year before. About 80% of those students attended public two-year colleges before leaving. Four-year UW system schools accounted for another 15%, and the rest were students who left private colleges. Wisconsin's increase in students leaving college is in line with national trends. Parents and community members in Sun Prairie sounded off at a school board meeting last night over an alleged locker room incident at Sun Prairie East High School. The conservative law firm Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty initially raised allegations that an adult transgender student showered alongside four minor female students at the high school in March. Media outlets subsequently picked up the story, but school officials pushed back, saying the reporting was inaccurate. Several people raised concerns about the incident during the school board meeting yesterday, but board members did not address their comments because the matter was not on the agenda. And now on to today's top stories. 
The auditorium of Doyle Administration Building was quite crowded for last night's Madison School Board meeting. Current and former teachers, students, parents, and community members showed up to protest the modest wage increases proposed by the Madison School Board. WRT reporter Abigail Levins has the story. We don't have enough. We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough anything. We're all overworked. Our specials teachers are asked to cover for someone who's absent. Our coaches are subbing. Everyone's exhausted. We can't keep doing this. That's Betty Jo Bradley, a third grade teacher at Havez Elementary and one of the speakers at the school board meeting last night. She and many other community members came to protest the modest wage increases proposed by the MMSD Board of Education. The Madison Teachers Incorporation, or MTI, has asked for an 8% base wage increase. MMSD has proposed a 3.5% hike in the district's next budget. And last night, MTI members donned their union red sweatshirts with solidarity on the back and lined the auditorium waiting to testify. Their main concern was the district not meeting that full cost of living adjustment. Teachers say that, with inflation, what the district has proposed amounts to a pay cut. Michael Jones is the president of the teachers' union. Just to keep up with inflation, we need an 8% adjustment in, in the whole wage salary schedule. Currently, MMSD justifies their salaries by arguing that the salary schedule will provide teachers with a raise. But Jones says that raise is small and not even guaranteed. It also does not take inflation into account. And inflation is why Jones says an 8% increase is a minimum for teachers. It would not even be a raise because the cost of living is higher for everyone. He adds that the lack of pay raise has caused many teachers to leave the district. Retired and former MMSD educators, some of whom now teach in neighboring districts, testified at last night's meeting. Shayna Sheeplehut is a teacher at Badger Ridge Middle School in the Verona Area School District. She used to work for MMSD, but could not afford to pay her rent and student loans. She says she makes $8,000 more than she did working in Madison schools. I now feel like a valued employee instead of a body to fill a vacant space. I feel like my job as a professional educator is worth something. Martha Netzloff, a first grade teacher at Lakeview Elementary, said this is the seventh year she has come before the school board asking for a wage that accounts for cost of living. She pointed to the number of issues teachers are grappling with and says the board is banking on teachers to accept less than their worth because they love teaching. I have to come down here once a year to beg you to literally do the bare minimum. MTI has pushed for a similar cost of living adjustments in the past three years. During hours of public comment, teachers and MMSD staff pointed out other issues the district is facing, everything from larger class sizes to the elimination of certain courses. Jones says that the preliminary budget includes too many cuts. He admits that enrollment is declining, but the cuts are outpacing that decline. Lee Lutke, an MMSD parent and first grade teacher at Franklin Elementary, was one of those concerned about larger class sizes. A few weeks ago, I asked my fourth grader after school about his day, and the first thing he said was, well, if we get one more student, we won't have enough chairs and music. We won't have any more room on our computer cart. Lutke says there are now up to 29 students in one classroom, which is too much for one teacher to handle. Melissa Olander, a teacher at Havez Elementary, also says that cutting staff is unrealistic. Chavez has only been fully staffed one day this entire year. Olander says their school needs a full-time substitute teacher 
and a full-time special education teacher. District custodians also spoke at the meeting. They said that they were the only group that didn't receive the $5 pay raise. Rob Larson, one of those custodians, said that many custodians are living paycheck to paycheck and working crazy hours just to keep up with the lack of staff. We're here to peacefully protest against being forgotten, ignored, and frankly blown off. Another common critique from teachers was a perceived lack of district transparency from administrators. Jones, the teachers' union president, says he hopes the school board will consider adjustments to the budget before it's finalized. The school board is expected to approve preliminary budget before the end of June. The budget will be finalized in the fall after enrollment numbers are confirmed. Outgoing MMSC Superintendent Dr. Jenkins has said that he wishes the schools had more money, but that is up to the state. A study conducted last year by the Wisconsin Policy Forum found that Wisconsin spending on K-12 education was below the national average. But Jones says there has been indications that district leadership might reconsider an increase to base wages. He says open conversations with administrators is important. So instead of making kind of like a rash uh, decision, let's slow down, let's have more conversations with each other as opposed to talking at each other, let's talk with each other and try to solve some of these problems as opposed to assuming one group has all the answers and and, uh, kind of holds all the cards. Jones says that when you help teachers, you help students. Netzloff, the first grade teacher at Lakeview, asked the school board to care about students. If you won't do it for us, do it because of the children. See you next year. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. City Bar is working with the City of Madison to pay a $15,000 fine after its serving of underage patrons was brought into question by the Alcohol License Review Committee. WORT reporter Jessica Lindahl has more. Last September, City Bar on State Street was cited for serving 137 underage customers in one night. At the time of the police inspection, only six customers in the bar were over the legal drinking age, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Now the bar is facing repercussions, including a $15,000 fine and demerit points off its alcohol license. Last Wednesday, the City's Alcohol License Review Committee, or the ALRC, met to consider penalties towards the bar. Ultimately, the ALRC decided to just take 10 points off the bar's license. Assistant City Attorney Jennifer Zilavi says that's the maximum the committee could knock off an alcohol license for violations in one night. The demerit point assessments were much higher. For example, a um, serving to underage was a 50-point violation. I think having underage on the premises was 25, so it was much easier back then for a licensed establishment to accumulate enough points that they would be looking at a license suspension. For City Bar to get their license revoked, they would have to lose 150 to 200 points over a 12-month period. Attorney Zalavi told the ALRC that some of the fake IDs used were obviously fakes, but some were extremely high quality. She says the quality of these IDs in combination with the practice of letting as many customers into the bar as possible put pressure on the business. Um, I think everybody now knows that you can't just scan the ID and leave it at that, that even if you have a scanner, you have to still be looking at the ID and looking at the person presenting the ID and, and you know, make a thoughtful evaluation of the ID, especially if the person presenting it looks like they may be under 21. 
She adds that owner Adam Greenberg plans on implementing stricter practices to further eliminate underage drinking. They were mortified by the incident. Um, it, it negatively impacted the license holder and his family. He was remorseful. He was willing to look at what he could do to um, avoid something like this in the future. He has invested in IntelliCheck Real ID. Greenberg also told the city he's planning for more staff training. It's not the first time the bar has faced repercussions for underage drinking. A search through local newspaper records show that City Bar and four other downtown bars faced fines for underage drinking in July of 2007. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jessica Lindahl. For the past 14 months, workers at CUNA Mutual in Madison have been in negotiations with the company for a new contract. They say terms offered by CUNA are not acceptable. If a new contract isn't signed in the next month, these workers could go on strike. WRT producer Nate Wagihout has more. Union! At a press conference at the Madison Labor Temple last night, union workers at the CUNA Mutual Group's Madison office announced that they had voted to authorize a strike if a new contract is not signed by CUNA within a month. That comes after the union, OPEIU Local 39, filed multiple allegations against CUNA with the National Labor Relations Board last week, including retaliation for union activity, unfairly laying off union organizers, and bargaining in bad faith. CUNA Mutual provides investment financing and insurance to credit unions worldwide and is one of the largest private employers in Madison. CUNA workers first unionized back in the 1940s and have never in their history gone on strike. Currently, a little more than a quarter of the over 1,700 CUNA workers in Madison are part of the union. At a meeting last Wednesday, 87% of union CUNA workers took a vote to authorize a strike, and 92% of those workers voted in favor. Workers have been negotiating a contract with CUNA since February of last year, saying that their top concerns are cutting benefits, outsourcing of jobs, and wage increases that don't match inflation. Sue Dresden has been an employee of CUNA Mutual for almost 47 years and says that she's personally experienced the impact of outsourced jobs. In 2006, her husband was laid off from CUNA Mutual after 19 years after his job was outsourced elsewhere. While the company raked in over $5 billion in revenue in 2022, the latest contract is only offering about a 4% raise for employees. Dresden says that because they help create that revenue, they deserve a raise that at least matches current rates of inflation. The past several years, the company has made record profits, and with inflation rate as high as 11% last year, we, the people, with our dedication to the company, have helped make the company profits too, and we deserve a fair contract. And if they are not serious about bargaining, we are ready to strike. The union also says that CUNA has not been negotiating with them in good faith. When negotiations began, they were held virtually. But earlier this year, CUNA announced that they would move to in-person negotiations only and that they would not be paying workers for their time in negotiations.
Lester Pines is an attorney with Pinesbach LLC and is representing the union in their case before the NLRB. He says that their refusal to negotiate virtually, alongside their hiring of union-busting law firms Jackson Lewis and Ogletree Deacons, shows that they are not working in good faith. CUNA Mutual, for years, has stonewalled the union. While it has surreptitiously and deliberately violated the contracts and added contractors into work, which is union work with individuals who should be in the union, but they have continued to play this game of saying that they were cooperating, kind of cooperating, but never cooperating. CUNA Mutual Group tells WORT in a statement, quote, We respect the decision of our employees to authorize a strike, and we are determined to reach a fair and market-competitive agreement that meets the needs of our employees, our customers, and company, end quote. The CUNA representative declined to further comment on any specific claims made by the union. The union also accuses CUNA of retaliatory firing of the union's chief steward, Joey Vika. In January, the union sent letters to thousands of credit unions warning of a, quote, potential disruption of financial services, end quote, due to their contract negotiating. In March, CUNA accused Avika of gathering those emails from private company data and fired Avika earlier this month over violating workplace policy regarding data privacy. But Ivica says that he was not the one to even send the letter and that he did not use private company data to get the information. Instead, he says that they purchased it from a third-party marketing group and that he has the invoice to prove it. Ivica has filed charges of illegal retaliation with the NLRB and is now looking to be reinstated with back pay. Here is Joey Vika's full speech at last night's press conference. My name is Joey Vicka. I'm the chief steward for OPEIU 39 at CUNA Mutual Group. I worked at the company for four years, uh, up until two weeks ago, when I was terminated in retaliation for my role as a union leader. Before I begin, uh, I'd just like to start by thanking everyone, both in this room and outside of this room as well, who's shown support for our union. All of the solidarity is exactly what we need in order to get through this fight. My coworkers and I are up against a multi-billion dollar company going through a brand transformation to change its name to True Stage next month. <laughs> Credit unions were created following the Great Depression to provide working people access to financial resources that were being denied. And CUNA Mutual Group was founded alongside these credit unions to provide them the products and services that they needed. While the credit union movement's motto is people helping people, CUNA Mutual's vision for True Stage is better described as people making profit. We work, for, we work for a very, very rich company. They reported more than a billion dollars in profits over the last three years, and they boast about record profits instead of using that wealth to pay, to bargain fairly, and they've used it to hire two very expensive <laughs> anti-union, union-busting firms to both stall, to spy, to retaliate, um, all in order to avoid reaching a fair agreement. CUNA Mutual has money, but we have community, we have elected officials that stand with our union, and most importantly, we have the power 
of more than 450 union members who are ready to shut True Stage down. Our contract campaign is about basic things that all working people deserve. We've made reasonable proposals, as Catherine outlined, but CUNA Mutual has denied them to us every step of the way. I'd like to give a few examples of the company's stance at the bargaining table tonight. When the company proposed to eliminate our HMO health care plan, their benefits director, Brad Pricer, told us that employees need more skin in the game. Quality health care is a matter of life and death. Health care isn't a game and our skin couldn't be more in it. We offer pension plans to hundreds of credit unions all across the country, and yet they're proposing to eliminate the pension plan for all new hires, which would cut their retirement contributions to new hires in half. CUNA Mutual has $37 billion in assets. And when we asked them how much cutting the pension plan would save them over three years, Jim Denholm, their vice president of HR, told us it would save them $159,000. The company refused to implement the same pay equity review that they already do for non-union staff because they said it, they wouldn't be able to do it for union members behind closed doors. Their anti-union lawyer, Mark Tilkins, said that doing pay equity reviews transparently would open them up to liability. Well, if CUNA Mutual is actually committed to doing the right thing, then I don't think they should have anything to hide. It only further convinced us of the fact that pay equity reviews are very important at CUNA Mutual Group. Our employer has pulled every illegal anti-worker trick out of the book, from stalling negotiations, to bombarding us with misleading emails, to retaliating against me and other union leaders. CUNA Mutual Group fired me for no other reason than trying to intimidate our membership. So I ask you all today, are we intimidated? No. I'd go through this all over again, because it's built our union into the organization that we have today, and I'm proud to stand with my coworkers and demand that we're treated with respect for the work that we do every day. None of us here want to strike. That's not why, why we do this. We do this for a fair contract, but we're ready for a strike if we need to. And if CUNA Mutual Group and CEO Bob Trunzo aren't willing to stop committing unfair labor practices and start bargaining a fair contract, then they'll see us on the picket line we're asking everyone in the Madison community and beyond to join us uh, if and when we need to strike because victories for working people are contagious. And tonight we celebrate our strike vote and tomorrow the fight continues. So I'd like to end this today with a chant. What do we want? When do we want it? Now! What do we want? With last week's vote authorizing a strike, CUNA workers have until May 19th to go on strike. If they decide to strike after that date, they would need to hold another strike authorization vote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wagihau. Greg Jabosky contributed audio to the story.
The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Earlier this year, local labor leader and political activist Gary Mitchell passed away. Mitchell was a worker and shop steward at UW-Madison and served as the vice president of AFSME International. Earlier this month, friends and colleagues gathered at the Madison Labor Temple to celebrate his life and work. WORT contributor David Ahrens looks back at Mitchell's legacy. Last Saturday, over 100 folks, mostly elderly and almost all labor activists, gathered at the Labor Temple on South Park Street to honor and celebrate the life of Gary Mitchell. If you haven't been involved with labor unions or Democratic Party politics over the last 40 years, you probably didn't know Gary Mitchell. But if you were involved, then you knew Gary because he was there. He was on every picket line, every organizing meeting, fundraiser, and phone bank. He was also a volunteer on WORT's Labor Radio. Gary was a dedicated shop steward, helping employees at UW, while also serving as the vice president of one of the largest unions in the country, AFSCME. But whatever work he took on, he did it enthusiastically and with humor and compassion. Let's listen to some of the speakers and attendees at the celebration. Okay, I'm Mary Chinchuckling. And uh, how do you know Gary? I've known Gary for 35 years uh, through AFSCME, the labor union that we both worked or worked with, and then we both worked on the UW Madison campus. Um, very compassionate. Put his whole heart into anything he did, or it wasn't worth doing. Get him ramped up about politics. That was always a <laughs> one to really uh, poke him about. He was also a labor union steward on campus and very passionate. Uh, that's probably the biggest thing. Um, he would get really ramped up if there was a true injustice versus you know someone calling in sick, which is a little more control. But if someone was set up at work or had other problems, that would be an issue that he would go all out for. I spoke to former Senator Chuck Kuala and Gretchen Lau, who both worked with Gary on many state and local political campaigns. And at the end, it was just, I mean, it was sad. But you know, he was always positive. And this is the best part. He told his family not to put his obit in the state journal <laughs> because of the Madison newspaper strike. <laughs> And that's He's why, carrying the boycott. That's why we had Facebook every, everyone, because it wasn't in the paper. He, he had high expectations of everyone. And sometimes, that just didn't work out right. They didn't have the same expectations that Gary did. He withstood criticism and stood by those who had to stand alone. And many times he took a hit for it, too. But you know something? He was there. For us. I asked Shell Gross, an old friend of Gary's, to talk about him. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was a, he was a good friend to have. He was, he paid attention to his friends and supported them. This is Ron Kent, who worked with Gary for 40 years. Ron is a labor activist and historian who served as the education director of AFSCME for many years. I met Gary on the picket line at uh, Madison Newspapers when the strike occurred. We were picketing together. That was 1977. He was quite a very dedicated guy and very kind and 
generous with his time and tried to organize inside of ASME, even though he was criticized very often by certain elements in ASME that didn't appreciate uh, his uh, militant stand on some issues. Playing up to some Republican legislators was a good idea, so he told the leadership that they shouldn't be doing that, and they didn't like to hear that, so he was very honest about how he felt about politics and uh, very forthcoming. In that regard, he was probably out of the mainstream of the union as yeah. well, because they wanted to court both parties. Yeah. He felt very strongly against that. The quality was that he was absolutely honest and corruptible, mm -hmm. and he would never compromise his values mm -hmm. or his trade union mm -hmm. principles. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of rubbed off on a lot of people yeah. and uh, set a good example for everybody. I also spoke to David Newby former president of the Wisconsin AFL-CIO, and an early leader of the UW Teaching Assistance Association. Main recollection of periods, you know, the guy who stuck it out, who did not retire, who as a union brother has remained active and uh, in a leadership position, even when most people, particularly given his declining health, would have simply said, okay, somebody else. In terms of his leadership, he was one who uh, you know, would get on the phone, talk to people, meet with them, and it was that personal relationship that really made it possible for him to get other people to volunteer, to be active, and to, to take a leading role. His ability to make personal relationships, and that means you know, showing up for other people, giving them the support that they need, and you know that is a that in itself is a sort of kindness. Yeah. Um, but it also you know came through that he really did care about people. Here's John Grable, political director for AFSME Wisconsin. Uh, Gary's passing has left the world a little less kind, a little less caring, a little less welcoming. It is up to all of us to make up the difference. Your missed brother. Thank you for sharing your talents fighting for working people, and thank you for spending your time with us. Gary was born on February 29, 1955, in Beloit, and died February this year. In addition to his unusual dedication to empowering working people, Gary was also a leap year baby. When he was 68, he said he was celebrating his 17th birthday. He didn't get many birthdays, but he had a life well lived. This is David Ahrens for WORT News. There is a page in history where the workers first fought back. In the might of exploitation, at last began to crack. In farm and field and factory, in workshop, mine and mill. A flame was lit, a beacon bright, that flame is burning still. And Connolly was there, Connolly was there. Every Tuesday, we check in with the Daily Cardinal for the latest news from the UW-Madison campus. And this week on the Cardinal Call, producer Madeline Alfonso spoke with campus news writer Noe Goldhaber about an anti-LGBTQ speaker invited for a student group's event. Welcome to the 
Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso, joined today by news writer Noe Goldhaber to talk about a recent event hosted by Badger Catholic that sparked some concerns. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Maddie. Can you explain what your story is about and why you wanted to write about it? At this point, probably about two weeks ago, Badger Catholic, which is a student organization here on campus at UW, um, hosted an event where they brought in conservative Catholic speaker Kim Zemner um, to talk about many things, I guess, related to religion, but primarily being that of homosexuality. Zemner, like, kind of for a little bit of background on her, she has had what she calls homosexual desires her whole life and acted on those desires at certain periods of her life and lived openly as a gay woman and also in a heterosexual relationship but then kind of like went back on her decision to live out as a gay lifestyle just because she was not at peace at that with her religion and so like in kind of decrying homosexuality she um yeah she does it because of religion, I guess, her own religion, that she decides to be against her own lifestyle. Can you explain a little bit more about who the speaker Kim Zember is, more on like her accomplishments, background? So she's from San Diego. She advertised her book at several points during the talk, but then, you know, she also indicated that she wasn't there to sell books. Her background's in real estate. She had a religious upbringing. She didn't much talk about like her like qualifications sort of sort of thing, um, but yeah, she's a heavily religious person. Has a religious book. Has an online sort of following where she like makes videos, talks about religious topics, and from conversations with the leaders of Badger Catholic, it sounds like she's a pretty common speaker at like conventions and that sort of thing. So she's probably known within like the online religious world, but outside of that, I had no familiarity with her before stepping on campus. What were the main points of Zember's talk, and how is it taken overall by students? Some of the audience, especially members of the audience who chose to kind of like engage with Zemner, you could tell based on like how they were asking the questions that they didn't agree with her and they were kind of challenging her ideas a little bit. But I would say the vast majority of the audience, you know, all seemed to kind of know each other and seemed to like be normal members of Badger Catholic events. So it was a definitely a mix, but I would say the vast majority of people were there because they're a member of Badger Catholic type of thing. Yeah, Zemner talked about the terminology that she used, I think, was scripture that called homosexuality objectively disordered. So she discussed that. Um, and she kind of had an interesting, like, religious way of going about it where, like, she would say something and then she would just go around in a lot of circles about it. And so it was really hard to come away with, like, concrete takeaways as to, like, what her points were. Yeah, I don't, like, I, like, it's hard, it's difficult to summarize what of substance she actually was saying, but she did, she talked about how, you know, she had examples about how, like, the natural family structure with a mom and a dad was better, and that, like, you know, she talks to people with two moms and they say something was missing, or how, like, an ex-girlfriend of hers had, um, thought she never wanted to have kids, um, but now has two twins with a new husband and how she's glad she got out of the way because this woman now can like have a family and have the life that she was meant to have. So there were definitely some like archaic images of homosexuality, but then like within that, you know, she did discuss how like Christianity kind of has a double standard for homosexuality and there's all sorts of types of sins 
like when one audience member asked her if she would go to like a gay wedding, she introduced the concept that she said, oh, well, would I go if I like a friend, casual acquaintance and his girlfriend were having a housewarming party for a house that they were living in together as if they were married, would I go to that housewarming party? And that was her answer to the question about whether she would or would not go to a homosexual union. What did members of the student organization Sex Out Loud say in response to this event and during the Q&A section of the talk? Yeah, so kind of in anticipation of the event, Sex Out Loud put out an Instagram post, um, which generated a fair amount of, like, pass around, I guess, throughout the Badger community online. And the email that Badger Catholic sent to all UW-Madison students, kind of similar to Zemner's talk. They used very inclusive language, and it was, like, homophobia not marketed that way I guess um like when you get to the crux of the arguments that's what they are arguing but it's just such a wraparound way of presenting like an image of love as they say that I I don't know at face value the email made it seem like the talk would be approving of LGBTQ identities within like the Christian Christian community um but yeah, I think members of Sex Out Loud did some research into Zemner just because they're like, oh, this is cool. This is great that Badger Catholic is endorsing this event and then figured out that that wasn't the case, which inspired them putting out a post. And then towards kind of the end of the q and I think they asked one or two questions maybe. And then um, Jane Hassel from Sex Out Loud, she just spoke a little bit about how like this was not the only option and this wasn't the only way to approach faith and sexuality at the same time. And she, I don't know, I think she was kind of speaking less to... Zemner, but more to like members of the audience who maybe are struggling or considering different types of issues like that, letting them know that like this isn't the only way to approach this topic or think about things. What did members of Badger Catholics say about what went into the planning of the event and its intended purpose? So I spoke to president and vice president. They told me that actually a lot of planning had gone into the event. I think they mentioned that it had taken about two years to get the event to happen. And like before winter break, they started having Zoom calls with Zemner. So it was a big event for them and it definitely took a lot of energy and planning on their end to get that event to happen. They couldn't really provide explicit reasons as to like why specific Zem- specifically Zemner. I think a former member of the club like had some a personal relationship or connection with her was kind of what I got out of that. You did some research on the Associated Students of Madison's budget and how it related to this event. What did you end up finding? Yeah, so just for some background on that sort of process, all UW-Madison students pay segregated fees, which I think is just like under $300 about for everyone. Um, and then that money goes into the Associated Students in Madison, um, which elections are actually tonight, so that's exciting. But so basically there's like, you know, a few million dollars that of student fees that are, you know, sent out to different organizations on campus, student organizations. And so I found out that Badger Catholic's budget, like per year is around $60,000 of student funding and that their guest speaker fund is right now about $9,500, but is gonna be increasing to almost 15,000 for next year. And it's unclear why it's increasing by that amount of money. What's something new you learned or found interesting while reporting on this unique story? I think that like what the, the point that keeps, I keep thinking of with this story is that like, 
there is all this money that ASM has and like it's so easy to access because they have to provide it in a viewpoint neutral way, which I don't quite understand what that means in practice. But yeah, so they have to provide as long as the request for funding is like technic meets some standards for like being educational and, you know, is can be accessed by all UW Madison students, then ASM is under legal obligation to provide the funding. And so I think that like that means that like a as students at UW Madison were providing funding for like speakers fees for people like Zemner and Matt Walsh and Ted Cruz to come to campus and talk. Yeah, so I think that's important to note that like our money that we're paying for tuition, not tuition, but as a part of a fee to go here is going to these people. And so that's a point. And then it's also important to note that like this money can also be accessed by the op- like the opposite way, you know, the opposite side can bring their speakers in and have bring their bring their people into campus. And we could have, you know, different politicians or figures on the left wing side of things or LGBTQ affirming and I think we do to some extent but yeah we can definitely like student organizations should be doing that on the other side too accessing this funding. Thank you so much Noe for coming on to chat. Thanks for having me. That's all for our Cardinal call this week we'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal call created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg encourages homeowners to pick weeds out of their lawns by hand this year and to avoid spraying pesticides. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I wanted to talk about the effect that herbicides and insecticides and organophosphates and some other chemicals that we use as people really affect our bird populations. And it was something I've been thinking about this whole last week because I was out in my yard and it's beginning to be spring. And of course, I'm outside and I'm like, ah, you know, trying to get some of the weeds out of my garden and raking up stuff. And I thought, you know, this is the time period where a lot of folks are out. They're thinking about gardening. They're thinking about their lawns and their yards. And how many of us on a day to day basis are talking about how we wish we didn't have the dandelions or the creeping Charlie or whatever in our yards? How many of us choose to use herbicides or some sort of broadleaf weed killer that you might pick up at your local hardware store? Now, it's something that I don't do personally. I typically will actually prefer to have my lawn grow naturally or at least, you know, hand pick out some weeds if I don't really want some thistle in the yard because it hurts to step on or if the creeping Charlie's creating some problems, you know, I might hand pick it. But I have been a firm believer in not using chemicals to spray our lawns. And it's because there are so many problems that we will see as rehabilitators in a lot of species that could be related to toxicities when it's an overdose of chemicals. And it might sound strange. It's a convenience I know that a lot of people have. You know, maybe you get the the true green lawn where somebody uh, comes through and sprays for you. You know, a professional comes around and you pay for the service, or you go find some Roundup or 2,4-D at your you know local Menards or something like that. 
well, that's that's great and all. There's a lot of that for sale. And it does help because then you don't have to be down on your hands and knees and digging out weeds. But when you think to yourself, you know, you might be walking in your neighborhood and you see a sign up that says, you know, careful, it's just been sprayed. Keep kids and pets away from this area. Do you ever think to yourself, well, what about the wildlife that's out there? What happens to them? They can't read the signs and they don't keep their kids away, especially when we've got baby birds that are fledging from the nests. You know, what kind of impact does it have on those species? And if you don't know, there's a lot of known research that shows that it can cause a ton of problems, especially to the nervous system. So the things that I think about first are going to be birds that are inhabiting mostly agricultural fields and also forest regions where pesticides are usually applied very frequently by different, you know, either owners of the property or just larger industrial types of areas where it needs to be controlled. So when I think of that, I think about the, you know, different situations that have just been huge that have caused massive die-offs in certain animals. So there's an organophosphate insecticide that's used commonly in crop farming, and it was introduced in 1964, but it caused over 100,000 mortalities and mass poisoning of about 6,000 Swainson's hawks in Argentina in 1995 and 1996. And it is a, a type of chemical that has now since been banned use in the United States, but it is used super widely all throughout the world still. And that was just a massive impact to a really cool species. And just because of trying to get rid of our bugs and insects that would, you know, cause problems in crops. That's on a really large scale. But if you look up at uh, the EPA's website, when you just look up 2,4-D, for example, which is probably one of the most widely used herbicides that's been around since the 1940s, people use it in their uh, lawns and aquatic sites and fields and fruit and vegetable crops and everything. And you can look at what the, you know, the registration information is on the website, you know, it talks about its, its dangers. It says that for humans, it's got a generally low toxicity, except if it's in an acid or a salt form, and it can cause some severe eye irritation, but they say that for aquatic animals, so if it gets anywhere near water, it has moderate toxicity to birds and mammals, slightly toxic to fish and aquatic invertebrates, and a practically non-toxic to honeybees? Okay, yeah, that's understandable if it's uh, in a certain form. But the ester form, which if anybody's taking your common chemistry classes, esters are like, when I think of things like banana flavoring in your Tootsie Roll or something like that, (laughs) that's a form of an ester if you're smelling it and it's not actually coming from that that actual, you know, fruit. It's, It's a compound that's made. It's usually got a very strong smell to it. The ester form can be highly toxic to fish and other aquatic life. And so we know that we're applying things like this to our lawns. It's raining and then it's going down into our water system. And the hard part is just knowing how many animals are killed every year just from that. And according to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and also the National Audubon Society, the estimate is about 7 million birds killed every year just because of household lawn pesticides. And that is super sad considering that birds already have a hard time in our world as is with, you know, hitting windows and getting hit by cars, you know, why add another thing to the list, which is pesticide poisoning is not something easy for rehabilitators to treat. Uh, most of the time, it's going to have some severe consequence that causes mortality or that is irreversible. And so the next time you're thinking about your lawns and thinking about what to use, you know, just coming from a rehabilitator, use your hands. <laughs> can, can you do things without actually relying on the use of chemicals that we know are going to cause problems because those birds 
if they are in the grass like robins and they're grabbing worms, you know, worms are going to be super easy to absorb those chemicals. Those birds are going to get it on their feathers. They're going to start preening. And there's some studies out there that show birds that have been affected by weed killers because they get it on themselves either through direct contact or oral ingestion, which for them would be eating insects that are treated or preening themselves to get the the stuff off of their feathers. All of that contributes to an overdose and a bioaccumulation of those types of chemicals and causes nervous system problems later. So seizuring and inability to fly, ataxia, you know, disorientation, lethargy, all of those things are hard for us as rehabilitators to diagnose when they come in because we don't know what happened to that animal. But when we see neurological symptoms crop up and they're abnormal, that is one of the things we have to think about. And we don't know exactly how to treat it super well, especially if we don't know what the chemical was, how much they've ingested. It's it's a really tough thing to you know, deal with as rehabilitators when we know that there is one way we could prevent it, which is not putting it out in the environment. Safer for people, safer for pets, also safer for the birds. So thanks for listening today. This is my uh, talk on the herbicides and common pesticides used in agricultural areas or on your own lawns and how that affects birds. So if you would think to yourself, this could harm me or others, also remember it can also harm wildlife. So we hope that you enjoyed this segment here on WORT and I appreciate you listening. This is a situation that we see all too commonly, especially in the spring as people are spraying their lawns. So give us a call if you find a sick or injured animal like this at 608-287-3235. Otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein Wilson. Your reporters were Abigail Levins and Jessica Lindahl. Special thanks to feature contributors David Ahrens, Jackie Sandberg, Madeline Afonso, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Nate Carlin engineered this show. Nate Wuggy Howe produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe at your preferred place for podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hope. Pull up next to Spanish Language News with Enrico Podcast. Good night.